are operating. Thanks to Caleb for uh, operating the uh, video. And uh, welcome to everybody. Glad to see everybody here. And uh, welcome to those of you who are watching from um, internet land, uh, home, or other other location. We're glad that you're you're uh, tuning in, so to speak. Glad that you're watching, and I pray that this will be a blessing to everybody here and everybody there. I don't know if you're in the cloud or not, <laughs> through the cloud, beyond the cloud. So there's a gray handout. If you don't have one, or somebody comes in late, I encourage you to point him to a handout because it is much easier. This is a, this is probably one of the deepest classes that we've ever done here, bar anything, for from my perspective of teaching. We're going to talk about uh, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and uh, philosophy and a, a number of other things. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 23. And um, after our prayer, I'm going to read that to us. And um, while you're waiting, if you notice on the first part of the handout, page one under introduction, we're in a section of Paul's warnings against heresy. And he warns them against false philosophy, verses 8 through 15 of our section in chapter 2. He warns them against legalism, angel worship, uh, legalism is verse 16, 17, and angel worship in verses 18 through 19, 18 and 19, and then asceticism, which is um, drastically beating down the flesh, trying to subdue the flesh and putting yourself, you know, the guys that lie on a bed of nails, that's asceticism, uh, beating down on the flesh to try to subdue it. Uh, you also, it's often associated with being in a, uh, some type of, a group like uh, those people that climb the steps of the nearest um, cathedral, generally Roman Catholic cathedral, on their knees or they're beating themselves. That's asceticism, beating down the flesh. And, uh, and it's akin to works in verses 20 through 23. So um, when I read this in a minute, uh, I would encourage you to... Um, um, we will we will note where those begin and end. So, uh, Brother Steve, would you mind um, starting us off in prayer? No. Thank you, sir, very much. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again just for the opportunity to be in your house, Lord. To hear your word, pray you be with Scott as he delivers. We should have to through the power of the Spirit, Lord. Lord. We just pray for our pastors as a way, Lord, just be with him as he preaches elsewhere. Lord, just pray for those who are sick and afflicted, Lord. You might raise them up. Yes, Lord. Lord. Thank you for your love, your goodness, your Son, his death, and resurrection, for life eternal, Lord, yes. through him. Thank you, too, Lord, for just giving us help. For this fast in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> now, I don't know. I, I used to hear people, when they were retired, say they felt like they were more busy than when they were working. And... and uh, 
I, I, I'm busier than I was when I was working, but I'm busier on things that I don't necessarily want to be involved with, like uh, uh, health issues and exercising and reading up and and uh, taking shots and all those kind of things. I heard I heard y'all laugh about that. That's true, you know. And uh, so the busyness of life has a way of just crowding out our minds. And so I want us to take a few moments just this morning, take a few moments and really focus on this passage because this passage is one of the most significant in the Bible. Um, and verse 8, as I indicated last week, is just uh, a joy for me. There's Paul's ability uh, to express things so profoundly, uh, the Holy Spirit enabling him to go and take words that the false teachers use and turn them back and use them against <laughs> use them against them, the false teachers. Now let's let's read together uh, Colossians two. We're going to read verses eight through twenty uh, three. I'm going to even though we're not doing beyond uh, 9 and 10. I want to keep that context going. So starting in verse 8, and this is uh, Paul's warning against philosophy through verse 15, chapter 2 of Colossians. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now verse 16 and 17 are legalism, a warning against legalism. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Christ verse 18 and 19 angel worship let no man beguile you of the reward of your reward rather in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of god and verse 20 through 23 are asceticism. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom 
and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, um, verse 8 is where we're going to start. I want to review there because uh, I found something that I really was tickled with. Just I really, <laughs> in the South, we say that tickled, you know. It, it really struck my, struck my interest. Uh, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Though there's a warning there against philosophy. And there's more philosophy in our world that's watered down uh, as an attractant in commercials and even in marketing in the grocery store. And, and uh, the news now is all flavored with a lot of enticements um, and uh, philosophy that, that um, the people have an agenda that are presenting the news with bias. Uh, so the specific warning is not to let man take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, MacArthur had something that I had not seen, and I thought it was really interesting. I'm going to philosophy, I'm going to quote from him. Philosophy is empty deceit. It doesn't give you what you expect. The word deceit is interesting in the Bible. One of the words used for deceit is in 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, uh, and verse, um, I found it, he didn't mention it, guile, in verse uh, 14, uh, where it says to, that 13 says, and receive the, the passage in 2 Peter 2, talks about false prophets and it really describes them graphically it sounded just like today he said but these as a natural brute beast make uh, made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to revel or to riot which means to revel in the daytime uh, spots they are and blemishes, reveling with their own deceivings that's uh, sporting themselves, uh, partying, etc. With, with their own deceivings. And that's the word that we have in um, this passage, verse 8, vain deceit, deceit there, apate, A-P-A-T-E. And then he uses the second word that MacArthur's talking about having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and essentially heart they have exercised with covet, just practices, cursed children. Essentially, that's having a heart trained in greed and uh, accursed children. Now, the second word he used it for deceit is translated guile. And that word is a word um, that means beguile, entice, or lure. It's not in your handout. It's D-E-L-E-A-Z-O. Del-A-Adso. Uh, Del-A-Adso. It means to catch by bait. Uh, D-E-L-E-A-R. Del-A-R. 
is means bait. So <laughs> this this word to deceive means catch by bait. And MacArthur goes on to quote him. Um, the original meaning of the word is fish hook. And the thing that's interesting about a fish hook is not is that it is not what a fish expects. When what you see is not what you get in this circumstance. And Paul's or Peter rather, Peter's saying philosophy is the same thing. It's a baited hook. Paul says it in this passage. Peter said it over here. Philosophy is not what you expect. It's a baited hook. You bite down on that bait. You think it's going to be so good, and you get the hook, and then you're then you're taken captive, taken away, and eaten. <laughs> um, you think it's going to be wonderful. It turns out to be deceiving. Uh, MacArthur goes on to say, "Yeah, oh yeah, Sheila." I was Second Peter uh, 2, uh, verses, verse 1 I read just talking about the context of uh, being in the, uh, uh, talking about false prophets. But the passage I read was verses 12 through, uh, four, uh, 12 through 13. Actually 14. 14 has the word beguiling, which is the uh, uh, deliazzo. So, you think it's going to be wonderful, it turns out to be deceiving. For all its claims, philosophy is an empty illusion. That's why, he goes on to say, that's why Bertrand Russell, and I'd, I'd heard that name, but I, I don't follow all the philosophical stars. He's a British guy that lived in the era of World War I, um, and he was a philosopher, he was in metaphysics, uh, um, what the nature of reality is, and uh, he was a social critic, a political activist. He was a pacifist in World War One. They actually put him in jail because of his activities in World War One in Britain. So he was quite a character. But on his deathbed, after 90 years, he said, "It's a washout. His, his life was for nothing." And that's the no hope that Christians. That's what philosophy results in. It sounds good. He goes on to say, philosophy sounds good. It seduces the mind because it plays into the hands of pride. But it deceives. The truth is in the revelation of God spoken finely and clearly in Jesus Christ. There's no value in speculative human philosophy. It's Empty illusion. And I thought that was really graphic. I like that because there's no doubt that if you bite into philosophy, you're going to get baited by Satan's hook and you're going to be taken away captive. So in the middle of the page there, um, verses 9 through 15, uh, talk about the justification and foundation of the warning verse 9, verse 8 contains a warning against philosophy. Verse 9 and verse uh, talk about the supremacy of Christ and his deity, him being God. Paul's warning is founded upon Christ's sole, singular, unshared supremacy. That's the basis of who Christ is, and that's the basic of this, basis of this warning. Uh, verses 10 through 15 is 
emphasizes the sufficiency of Christ and his humanity. Uh, these, these verses speak to Christ's absolute and complete sufficiency and his capability and ability, his qualification to meet our needs. Uh, the philosopher would say, you need to understand all this knowledge and, and that's what you need. And Christ provides, Paul says, Christ is God and he provides all your needs. He's capable of providing all your needs. So, uh, I write in big letters toward the bottom of the page one. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who was a biblical scholar, said, Christ is all and all you need. Christ is all you need. That's all you need. And Christ is the sole source for what you need. I, that's mine. F.F. F. Bruce is better. Okay, note uh, right under that. The impact of this passage is, uh, in verses 9 through 15 is, colon, because of who God is, who Christ is, he's God, and what we find in him, his soul only, his, he, he alone is sufficient to meet our needs. Any other tradition of man, including philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, all of that, whatever it is, is false because it's not after Christ. All else is false teaching. It's all erroneous. It's all heresy. Mysticism, um, special knowledge is required to do this. All, you need to work, works, involve, work salvation. All of that is heresy. The next to the last page, uh, next to the last paragraph on this page, this passage coming up in verse 9 and 10, this passage contains one of the most glorious and magnificent true pictures of who Christ is, supreme. And what he's done to meet our needs, he's sufficient, and what we are in him, we're saved. And we can have all of our needs met through him. So now we're going to look at three positive, affirmative statements in verses 9 and 10, which relate to Christ being supreme and sufficient, God and man, and which form the justification and the foundation for his warnings. Okay, top of page two. So the first statement is about the full deity of Christ, the complete and the word full I use because that's pleroma. And Paul plays on that word that's misused by the, the, um, the, the Gnostics, which we'll talk about in just a minute. For in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Now, so I was going to mention that... Um, uh, that beguiling, the word that was used in Second Peter that Sheila asked me about, that's a metaphor for, for fishing, the trickiness and being tricky in fishing. And uh, um, the, uh, what better metaphor for Peter to use as a fisherman is that of uh, the, the bait, <coughs> the false bait of philosophy, false teachers preying on those that are not strong in the word of God. Okay, so... MacArthur says, I believe that verse 9 may be the greatest statement of the deity of Jesus Christ 
that's in any of his epistles. Now that's quite a statement. So here we have a passage that is considered one of the greatest statements, and we should be of, of, of the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ's deity. So we should be familiar with this passage because this is a great one to use uh, against the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the other folks that. <coughs> Every cult generally denies the deity of Christ. So, you see the note here. This verse is one of the clearest and strongest statements of the deity of Christ. It also continues the theme, fullness, that's mentioned in Colossians 1.19. If you flip back and look at 1.19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Christ, should all the fullness dwell. <coughs> Excuse me. And that word is the pleroma. So, um, I'm going to talk about pleroma in just a minute. I, I, got, I got concerned about that word. What does that actually mean? So, um, I, I, I looked up, what do the Gnostics believe that pleroma is? And uh, I've never read more gobbledygook in my entire life. I'm not kidding you. It was depressing. I could not literally figure out what they were saying. It was so netherworld. I just couldn't. So finally I found one written in plain English and it said, I've been talking about um, eons, A-E-O-N-S. That's some type of spiritual beings like angels. A, and of which they thought Christ was one, the Gnostics believe that that is the resource that we have to reach God is through those eons. You need to have special knowledge of these to be able to deal in, with God. And I talked about them being in the pleroma between here and heaven. Um, this person that wrote about Gnosticism said Pleroma is Greek for fullness and it's the name the Gnostics gave to heaven. That's the only clear second clear statement the most clear statement I read concerning what they believed heaven what Pleroma is. So the Gnostics use this term Pleroma. Paul's going to turn it around and use it in the right way according about Christ. And Pleroma P-L- E-R-O-M-A means fullness or being complete. And um, you could see this is akin to angel worship because they're talking about eons that, 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 um, that they can connect with, that can somehow communicate with God. Um, the Gnostics also, now here, start getting into the craziness, for the Gnostics, heaven wasn't just something that existed high in the sky, a subject of theological speculation and hope for a happy afterlife. The Pleroma's fullness was also an eternal spiritual state. This is the false teaching of being what was accessible in this life through direct experience. And the Gnostic Gospel of Philip says, what is innermost is the fullness and there is nothing further within, and this is what they call the uppermost. I know. Sidney goes, what? That's what I did. I read that, I read that yesterday. I go, what? 
So I don't know that they, I don't know, it's not worth repeating. I don't know that they knew what the fullness was. I don't know that if they knew it because I think they just kept making it up. And I think that may be why Paul did not name this heresy because they don't know what the name of it is. The other people called him knowing ones, Gnostic. I'm not sure they knew what they knew. It's unbelievable how crazy it is. So I have another quote. When we get down to item D there, fullness, that's about pleroma. And we'll talk about that just briefly. But I just, I could not believe what what they believe. It's unbelievable. <laughs> now I sound like a Gnostic. Okay. So the word for, back to uh, for in him all, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. The word for is used here as a sense of as a result or because. Paul said, I'm warning you against philosophy because, and he, and he talks about Christ is God. And, and he's going to say that um, well, he is the, as he is fully God, okay, this links verse, rather, this links verse 8 with verse 9. It establishes verse 9, which describes Christ's deity. He's fully God. And that is the basis, the foundation, and I also added the essential urgency for the warning. Because if God is, if the Lord Jesus Christ is God, we should be focused on him and not all these other things like philosophy. We don't need to... Philosophy is human speculation. Okay, so Christ represents and is the true God. In Him is emphasized by its position in the sentence. You notice, for in Him. It's right up at the beginning. And that, in the Greek grammar, means that's something that's emphasized. Um, so that its priority is shown by its position in the sentence. And that creates the thought that in him alone only the fullness of deity dwells. Not in aeons, not in angels, not in emanations or any other thing they could dream up. Not in philosophy, not in any of those things. In Christ alone, in him, for in him. Now dwelleth means to live permanent, in permanent residence. It's in the present tense, indicating continuous action. Uh, and it, it used the same verb that's used in Colossians 1.19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, reside, live, uh, abide. So um, a guy named, uh, a scholar named Mool says, In Christ, the fullness of deity permanently resides finding in him, that's in Christ, a settled and congenial home. Now, I read that and I thought, was Christ a friendly home for God's essence? You know, so I looked that word up. It also means suitable, compatible, and almost appropriate. What it's saying is this was a natural place for God to be in Christ. So he, he Mool is commenting on this is this is this is this is appropriate. That's where Christ, where God's essence should be, is in Christ. So, um, you may like that quote or not. I like it. So, if we 
Christ, the deity of God, uh, in Christ the fullness of deity permanently resides, finding in him a settled and congenial home. Okay, now back to fullness on item D on page 2, right close to the middle of the page. Fullness, underlined. Paul takes the word fullness, the Greek word pleroma that we've talked about, which is a word used by the false teachers to define, uh, I, call, I said here, the space between earth and heaven, heaven or some intangible thing that can happen in you here. I'm not sure what that is. I don't think they are either. And he uses it more properly and, and uses it to describe um, and also I read one other place that Pleroma was to the Gnostics all of the fullness of what a deity should be somehow. So he turns that around and says, well, all of that fullness is in Christ. He has all of the fullness of, of deity in him. And so Paul properly uses it to describe the supremacy of Christ as God, who is the real fullness of the Godhead. So for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Now, I have a quote by Ironside I want to share with you here. <clears throat> Harry Ironside uh, worked in the Bay Area, um, and he was uh, had a church in San Francisco and was became a uh, uh, widely... Um, in the 1800s, a widely uh, uh, traveled uh, pa uh, pastor, evangelist, uh, scholar. He said, when the Savior revealed himself to the Samaritan woman, she found every question answered as she gazed upon his face. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We've already seen and, uh, that this word pleroma was a favorite term of the Gnostics. It represented to them the sum of the qualities of deity, and with them Christ was one, but one. He was only one, he's saying, of many stepping stones of intermediaries leading up to the pleroma. But here we learn that not only are all the attributes of God seen in Christ, but the very essence of the nature of God in all its entirety dwells in Christ. And he goes on to say, Ironside goes on to say, and that God is, is and that God, excuse me, all that God is, is fully told out in Christ. He could say, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That's what he meant by that. That's why the Pharisees got so mad because he knew he, they were saying he was God. So that we may say without hesitation, if any ask as to the character of God, that God is exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, and in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in a body. So, and he goes on to say, so that when we at last come into the presence of the Father, when we're in heaven, we shall find in him one known and loved before the Lord Jesus Christ, not a stranger, still unknown and possibly unknowable. That the Gnostics, you know, you can't know God. So, um, so fullness. Paul takes the word fullness, which is a word used by false teachers, and then he takes that and says, this 
fullness of all the essence of God is in Christ. When you look at Christ, you're seeing God. He is the real fullness of the Godhead. So of the Godhead is uh, item E, right in the middle of page 2. This is the only use in the New Testament. There were two words, I think, in verse 8, and this third one, Paul is really pulling out his vocabulary to explain these items. That's how significant it is. And I could see why he got so excited about this when Epaphras came to the, to the uh, prison in Rome where he was, why Paul got, began to agonize for them because this heresy is unbelievable. This Gnosticism thing is just incredible. Uh, so he used this of the Godhead. It's the only use in the New Testament. It means not just the divine qualities and attributes. It wasn't like he was kind of like God. But he was the very essence of God. It means that be, he's being God. He is God. Christ is not merely God-like. He is God. So I have some quotes here. So the whole glorious total of what God is, the supreme nature, capital N, in its, in its entirety. That's Mool. The Gnostic teachers, Vaughn said, the Gnostic teachers asserted that deity was filtered through a succession of spirit powers, angelic beings. Paul denies this by affirming that the Godhead in all its fullness dwells in Christ. It's not a bunch of angels. It's not philosophy. It's not uh, legalism. It's not angel worship. It's not asceticism. It's Christ. So Philip says, it is in him, that's Christ, that God gives a full and complete expression of himself. And the early church father said, being of one substance with the Father. Christ is of one substance with the Father. So <clears throat> the note here, uh, looking at the last paragraph, Paul said Christ is God and the full and complete expression, revelation, and essence of God. Therefore, any other teaching is false and after the tradition of men. So let's look at the real humanity of Christ. That's the second statement for in verse 9b. Uh, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead and bodily. I added the word bodily here. Um, one thing I wanted a quote I wanted to share with you first here MacArthur in him modifying Christ in verse 8 continually dwells um, in him modifying Christ in verse 8 it says that the deity of Christ or the Godhood continually dwells. It doesn't come and go like the Gnostics taught. Uh, all, the pleroma, the fullness of deity in a body. He says, I don't know how you could deny it. And the result of that reality to us, we don't need philosophy. Why? Because verse 10 says, ye are complete, where? In him. The one who is the head um, of all other spiritual beings, all other angelic beings called principalities and powers, his fullness, beloved, Christ's fullness is imparted to us. We'll look at more about that in a second. So the real humanity of Christ, uh, for in him all the fullness of the Godhead, 
uh, dwells for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and bodily Christ is God I'm reading from 2a bottom of page 2 Christ is God in the flesh he's incarnate incarnate is a word that means in the flesh so Christ is God in the flesh Christ was also God and with him before Bethlehem that's pre-incarnate before he became in flesh before he came in the flesh remember the passage uh, John 1 1 2 in the beginning was the word and the word the word meaning Christ in the beginning was the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ was with God and the Lord Jesus Christ was God the same was in the beginning with God <clears throat> when Christ the word who was who is God was clothed with flesh and became incarnate he was still Christ who is God. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Christ, this passage teach is that Christ is fully God and fully human. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. So let's look at that. Now that is... The, one of the most profound statements in the New Testament. Christ was God and he was man. Um, MacArthur says, um, Christ possesses the fullness of the divine nature and attributes bodily. In Greek philosophy, philosophical thought, rather, matter was evil and spirit was good. So, I don't know how matter could be evil because matter is incapable of doing anything. Matter was evil, spirit was good. Thus it was unthinkable that God would ever take the, on a human body. Um, so that's part of matter, I guess. Okay, I see that now. Paul refutes that false teaching by stressing the reality of Christ's incarnation. Jesus was not only fully God, but fully human as well. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, I have a quote by Vaughn. <clears throat> Vaughn says, It is in our concern for the truth of Christ's deity, he's saying, we consider the truth of Christ's deity very, very important. And it is. Okay. In our concern for the truth of Christ's deity, we are sometimes tempted to undervalue his humanity. He's, he's saying theologically, we must insist on the reality of both truths. Christ is fully God, very God of very God, and yet he's really man, one with us. This emphasis, particularly prominent in Hebrews, uh, it, it is particularly prominent in Hebrews, and it's a truth where we must, that we must guard and treasure. If you say God was not man, uh, rather Christ was not man, that leads you into theological error. If you say he wasn't God, that leads you into theological error. Now, um, the Bible says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He set aside his, his, uh, his godhood and, and when he was living and he acted in his, his manhood. Um, I want to share with you. So I have sprung on you one of the most divine difficult things to consider. <clears throat> the, 
Theologically, they call that the hypostatic union. Okay, now you're a theologian. You know a theologian term, okay? Hypostatic union. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, hypostatic, S-T-A-T-I-C, hypostatic union. And they, they're, they're saying that's the union of fully God and fully man. When they say fully, they're talking 100%. Now you're saying, well, Scotty, how can you have 200% and a 100%? I don't know. This is, and this, I've got a quote here. There's a, there's a place called Got Questions. And I noticed that there were some good answers in that. So it's on the internet. It's by S. Michael Houdman, H-O-U-D-M-A-N-N. And he has a ministry doing that. He didn't feel called into the ministry and the Lord led him to this thing. So he, he really, I guess it really had a profound effect on answering people's questions in the hope of leading them to Christ. And so <clears throat> I just I, I just wrote, I, I put that question in there. And uh, he says, the doctrine of the hypostatic union is an attempt to explain how Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. It is ultimately, now listen, I, I know I've talked and I've droned on for a while, but listen to this. It is ultimately, though, a doctrine we're incapable of fully understanding. Why? Why? Because we're not God. It is impossible for us to fully understand how God works. We as human beings with finite minds should not expect to totally comprehend an infinite God. Jesus is God's Son in that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Luke one thirty-five. But that does not mean Jesus did not exist before He was conceived. Jesus has always existed, John eight fifty-eight and ten thirty. When Jesus was conceived, He became a human being in addition to being God. So, Jesus is both God and man. Jesus has always been God, but he did not become a human being until he was conceived in Mary. Jesus became a human being in order to identify with us in our struggles, Hebrews 2.17, and more importantly, so that he could die on the cross for our, and pay the penalty for our sins, Philippians 2.5-11. In summary, the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. There is no mixture or dilution of any nature. Not like one nature became subdued when he became human, and then another nature became elevated when he died on the cross. There's a lot of crazy things out there. So there's no deleting or watering down or lessening. He's 100% God and 100% man. And that he is one unified person forever. So that's, that's an amazing thing to me. And the, but that's a, a, one of the essential doctrines of, um, of our faith. Is that God, Christ was fully God and fully man. And this passage is one of those passages that teach that. For in him dwelleth all the fullness, the completeness, the complete essence of God, of the Godhead bodily in his flesh. Now, <clears throat> Christ is fully human and fully divine. Let's look at page three. That's, this is the third statement. Now, um, 
the first um, the first one was at uh, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the God, of Godhead and that he was so he was fully fully God number one full deity of Christ and two the real actual humanity of Christ number two and number three the sufficiency of Christ that means completely able completely capable if you adequacy sounds like well he's just kind of adequate no it's, it it was more than adequate he's completely far beyond our imagination he's infinitely able and capable and verse 10 says and you are complete again full that's their word pleroma you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power and a you're complete in him that means that because christ is fully god and fully man we are made uh, i repeated that we are made full as we share in his fullness in him in union with him and the position of in him in the sentence in that verse the actual location grammatically get makes it uh that gives emphasis to the meaning that only as we are joined to christ is his fullness ours we can't make ourselves full it's the lord jesus christ so the main point is that in Christ, every spiritual need is met because of his resources as God made available to us in him. So Vaughn said, possessing him, we possess all. And uh, MacArthur says, believers are complete in Christ, both positionally by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ. We know that when we're saved, our sins are given to Christ to, and and they're taken care of but he also we often don't mention this is that our sins his righteousness is imputed to us which is a term um, that's uh, an accounting term reckoned to us so uh, the doctrine of um, if you remember Paul writing to the Colossian church and saying um, to Philemon and saying hey whatever Onesimus has done Put it on my account. That's that's a, that's an illustration there of of imputation, uh, a type, if you will. So uh, when Onesimus, when uh, Philemon thought about Onesimus, he thought about Paul, and he saw the righteousness and the goodness of Paul that he had done. And it, so anyway, so the believers are complete in Christ, both positionally by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ. And the com also by the complete sufficiency of all the heavenly resources in Christ for spiritual maturity. So um, the purpose of Paul here is to show uh, to the Colossians and to us that there is no need for Christians to turn anywhere else except to Christ for spiritual help, including not to philosophy, laws, angels, or works. Christ is all and all we need. Remember that? So, uh, let me share with you a couple of things here. <clears throat> Christ is a pleroma of God, and we are the pleroma in Him. We're complete in Him. This thing says, and ye are complete or full in him who is the head of all principality and power. We can be made complete in him. Um, 
So God literally, he goes on to say MacArthur, God literally passes himself to us through Christ. You are complete in him. That's a perfect tense. That means we have been completed in him when we're saved and with eternal results, the things that result from that being, being saved. We're complete in him. When God sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Um, so when you think about the fall of man, you think about what happened. It's pretty sad. When man fell, he fell into a sad state of incompleteness. He was, he, he was sinful. His nature became sinful. And as an unsaved man is spiritually incomplete, for he's totally out of fellowship with God. He's morally incomplete because he has no standard of conduct. And he, if he did, he couldn't live up to it. He is mentally incomplete because he's incapable of knowing the truth. As an unregenerate, not unsafe person, we're not complete. We can't know the things of God. We can't do them, much less know them. So you have a spirituality now as a safe person. So you have a spirituality morally, mentally incomplete. Oh, a spiritually. So you have a spiritually, morally, mentally incomplete man, the unsafe person. And Jesus Christ enters a scene and Paul says, and ye are complete in him. Second Peter 1, 4 says, you become partakers of the divine nature. Now, this is good stuff. You become partakers of the divine nature. Think of it. You become um, a partaker of the divine nature. A man instantly becomes spiritually complete. He has fellowship with God. The life of God is in him. He becomes morally complete, not because he's perfect. He doesn't live perfectly uh, in the practical sense, but because he recognizes the authority of God's will and he has a standard and the energizing Holy Spirit to give him strength to obey it. So, and he is mentally complete, not in the sense of knowing everything, but in the sense of having the truth and the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit. So the part of the work of salvation is before God, we're seen as complete because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Okay, so... The purpose of Paul, item B, uh, I, I think I read that. Um, the purpose of Paul is to show the Colossians and us that there's no need for Christians to turn anywhere else except to Christ for spiritual help, including not to, I did read that, philosophy, laws, angels, or work. Christ is all and all we need. Thou art Christ are all I need more than all in thee I find. Wesley wrote that, and I think that's actually in a hymn somewhere. And... Um, Christians are partakers of the divine life, MacArthur goes on to say. What an incredible truth. When you became a Christian, you received everything you needed. Everything. Now, it's not that, I'm going to stop here. It's not that you can use everything, but he already gave it to you. And part of growing in Christ and growing in grace is learning how to use those resources. We have, um, he says, goes on to say, everything. Peter said, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't need any higher knowledge. You don't need the words of Mary Baker Eddy. That's Christian scientists. You don't need the words of Joseph Smith. That's Mormonism. You don't need the Book of Mormon. You don't need the words of Annie Besant. I had to look that up. It was some Theosophical Society British uh, soci sociologist. 
that dabbled in the occult Islam, Buddha, and Hinduism, atheism, and uh, so forth. Uh, you don't need Judge Rutherford. That was the people, that was the guy that started Jehovah's Witness or instrumental in it, or anybody else. You don't need Mr. and Mrs. Fillmore. That's Unitarianism. You, to add to what you have, you don't need Apostle so and so. You know, some churches do that. I'm an apostle. You don't need Apostle so and so to tell you anything. And you don't need Sung Moon, I had to look him up, he's a unification church, to come along and add to what you have. You don't need anybody because you're complete in Christ. So, the all-sufficiency of Christ, this verse that we read, verse 10, affirms that Christ is all-sufficient by the statement, He is the head of all principality and power. So, you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Uh, this means that Christ is the source of life. I've written it down with a little diamond sideways. Source of life, creator over all existence. He's the sovereign Lord, supreme over all existence. He's the sustaining Lord, maintaining, uh, maintains all existence. So, the summary there, Paul's warning in, in verse 8 uh, is founded and based upon Christ who is God and who is man who is all sufficient to make to meet all of man's needs there's no reason to search anywhere else because he alone is the source for man's needs Christ is all and all you need so Paul pulled out the big guns <laughs> of theology when he was fighting against the the um, Gnostic heresy and said, Christ is God. He is complete. He's the essence of God. You're complete in Him and He is over everything and all you need is in Him. And He can help. When you see Him, you see God. And some of them had seen, seen Christ. So, not Paul, but some of the others had seen Christ that were older, like John, etc. So, questions. Now, that, that, that was a lot of stuff. That, there's some deep theology. If you, if you got that halfway, you're doing very, very well. That's why I wrote a lot of that out for you, so that you have it to look at. And um, you can check it out. Questions? Okay, we'll continue uh, with verses uh, 11 and following next week. And we can touch on everything again. Thank you for your kind attention. That's deep. This is deep stuff. No one can, no, there is not a single illustration that exists for the Trinity and for the hypostatic union. There's nothing. There's no illustration that can say, well, here, here's an illustration of how God, how the Lord Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. Two 100 percent can exist in one 100 percent. So we, you can't, there's nothing. We take it on faith because that's what the Bible says, and and um, and it that's what makes our theology too. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for these wondrous truths, Lord, that we're partakers of the divine nature. We can't imagine that. What a privilege, Father. I pray that we would act accordingly, Lord. I pray that we would run the race that's before us with godliness and honor and. Uh, with 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 fidelity 
And Lord, help us to look at your word and apply the truths to our lives. Help us to be like Christ in character. And Lord, I pray that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to avail ourselves of all the resources that you have given to us. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the, your blessing here. We pray that you bless the service to follow. Thank you for each person that's here. I pray that you be with those that are ill, those that could not be here for traveling, for safety. For uh, Pray, Father, for uh, healing for all those that are ill. We know that we have a very large prayer handout because there are many people ill. Pray that as a God of all comfort, you would comfort them and you would comfort us with these wonderful words from your, from your, from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.